Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be you, with you here this morning. I think the last time I was standing on this stage, uh, it was in September, and it was in front of 200 or so. Uh, hi, Jenna. She waved in the back. Uh, it was in front of 200 or so youth, and so it's a little bit different here this morning, and that's totally great. Uh, it's a blessing to be here and worshiping with you uh, this morning. As mentioned, I'm the youth pastor at Langley Emanuel, and so some here know me well, some don't know me that well at all, um, but I look forward to bringing you God's word this morning. We're going to dive right in, if that's all right, because we are going to be looking at a very awesome passage in Romans this morning. Now, as far as fully understanding the gospel, Romans is one of the most important books in the Bible. Uh, in Romans, Paul dives right into topics like salvation and faith, righteousness, and, and what it means to be justified or, or made right in God's eyes. Now, specifically, the passage we're going to look at today, Romans 3, verses 21 to 31, it gets right at the heart of all of these matters. Honestly, the importance of today's text just not for Romans, but for the entirety of the Bible, cannot be overstated. Just hear what a few scholars have said about the passage that we're going to read this morning. New Testament scholar C.E.B. Cranfield calls this passage the center and heart of the whole letter. Similarly, Mike Bird calls it the epicenter of Paul's gospel. Martin Luther actually said that today's text is the chief point in the entire epistle of Romans and the whole of the Bible. And not to be outdone, New Testament scholar Leon Morris said that Romans 3, verses 21 to 26, is possibly the most important paragraph ever written. That's intriguing, isn't it? So let's read it. We're going to read Romans 3, 21 to, 30, uh, 21 to 31 now, but especially today we're going to focus on Romans 3, 21 to 26. So please open your Bibles. I saw that there's a bunch in the pews there. Please have those open today. If you've got a Bible app on your phone, that's good too. Keep that open though, so we're going to be going back to this passage uh, a lot today. So Romans 3, 21 to 31, it says this. But now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, or mercy, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. 
the Word of God. Now, this passage starts with the words, but now. If you've read Romans before, you'll know that basically the entirety of this letter, up until this point, the universal human problem of sin has been revealed and exposed. Paul does a little introduction through the first 17 verses of Romans, and then Romans 1, verse 18, to Romans 3, verse 20, he talks about sin, and he goes in depth about the sin in this world. But with today's passage, the problem of sin is resolved. But now, Jesus comes to resolve that problem. But now, Jesus intervenes. Now, clearly that's important, but why does someone like Morris say that this is possibly the most important paragraph ever written? Well, the reason that this passage is so important is that it lays out the pinnacle of the gospel story and pours out truth that isn't just for you and I here today, but is for all of humanity throughout all of time. What this passage is all about is this. Jesus gives us righteousness, which we receive through faith in him. Jesus gives us righteousness, which we receive through faith in him. That's the big idea. That's the news that we are going to look at today. Now, I'm going to do something different this morning and different than I usually do, and we're going to start off with some present-day context which will help sort of explain why a passage like this is so important. Uh, Like I said, usually I like to look at the context of the passage first, but today we're going to flip that on its head. Now, our culture right now is all about equality, right? You can call it social tolerance, you can call it secular humanism, you can call it human decency, or whatever you want. But our culture desires inclusivity. We also desire progress. If we aren't moving forward, we're moving backward. If we're not progressing, we're regressing. But questions start to arise. Making progress from what? Or to where? Or for who? Or to what end? See, the the idea of equality or tolerance or inclusivity, it sounds good. It even is good, perhaps. And I believe that it's all coming from really good places in people's hearts trying to do well. But holes start to appear when you start asking questions. Equality for who? For everyone? How so? And in what capacity? Are we looking for equal outcomes or for equal opportunities? By what means or what measures do we accomplish that? Who is the gatekeeper of ultimate progress? When do we get there? See, a big problem with seeking equality is that without God, we don't know what equality looks like. See, equality or inclusivity, they look different to everyone because we are all so different and we want or desire different things. Barriers start popping up everywhere. Barriers that we all know very well because we live in this broken world and we cannot escape them. Barriers of ethnicity, of socioeconomic status, and of ideologies, to name sort of the big three. For example, what equality looks like for people is different depending on the color of their skin and, just as importantly, the country that they live in. Social justice for one ethnic minority in Canada will look very different than social justice for an ethnic minority living in Saudi Arabia or China or Nigeria or Colombia. What progress looks like goes broader than that too. What it looks like for upper class people looks different for progress than the middle class, and different for progress in the lower class. 
These socioeconomic divides change even further and get even stronger when you start looking at what's happening around the world as well. Ideologies also change perspectives on progress. Depending on what your solutions or your ideas are for progress or equality are, you're labeled either a liberal or a conservative, a progressive or a traditional, open-minded or conventional. We're very polarized right now in our culture. No matter what, you end up butting heads with someone else, even if you're kind of reaching for the same things, for the same means of inclusivity. And if you're butting heads with someone, it's often the other that is then called unjust or exclusive or intolerant. It's hard to move forward when half of the people around you are moving in a different direction. So whatever our solutions are for ethnic, social, or ideological change may be, we all have different views, different opinions, different perspectives, even when sometimes our goals might actually be similar. Equality, tolerance, inclusivity, all seemingly good things, but they're all seemingly out of reach because people are always going to be people. Sinful, broken, pigeonholed, stubborn. But now... I did there. But now, the gospel truth revealed in Christ and explained by Paul in today's text shows us that there is a way. But more importantly, it shows us that there's there's a way forward, a better way forward, a way that actually unites and invites positive change. A, A gospel truth, the gospel truth of God's righteousness given to us, it transcends everything. It transcends race, it transcends status, it transcends ideologies. This righteousness given to us by God acknowledges that we are the same. In fact, we are all the same. We are all united. We are all united because we are all sinners. We are all in need of saving. And no one can attain salvation by doing, no matter their race, the paychecks they receive, or the ideologies they have. We all need salvation. We we all need this righteousness from God that is beyond anything the world can offer us. We need an alien righteousness. That's what reformers call it. An alien righteousness. A righteousness from beyond this world. A righteousness we can only receive from our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this righteousness is for all people. For Jew, for Gentile, male, female, slave, free, or to modern that up a bit, for conservative or liberal, for employer or employee, or for any race and culture under the sun. This righteousness is for you, and if you receive it, you receive it by faith in Christ. For we are all the same in sin, and we are all the same in glory. That's why this passage matters so much. Because the inclusivity that is desired by everyone in our culture is found in one place. The exclusivity of Christ's righteousness. The exclusivity of Christ is the most inclusive doctrine that humanity has. True unity, true equality can be found with him because Jesus gives us righteousness, which we receive through faith in him. Now, I got ahead of myself a little bit. We'll park that for now. We're going to come back to it a little bit later. But let's start looking at this text and really wrap our heads around all of this. A couple questions remain. Three, in fact. The first one is this. What is this righteousness that matters so much? 
The righteousness, which can also be called justification, is the idea of being made right in God's eyes, receiving a clean slate from him, knowing that we are spared of his judgment from our sins. Justification is this instantaneous, instantaneous, got it, it's this instantaneous legal act of God in which he first sees our sins, our past sins, our present sins, and even our future sins as forgiven. And two, he declares us to be spotless in his eyes because of Jesus Christ. So justified people, this righteousness we receive, it gives people a new status, a new identity, a new family, and a new hope. It makes us ready to enjoy a new creation. Justification, righteousness, it's rooted in God's undeserved favor given to sinners. It's all grace and it all comes from God. And that's because salvation is not granted apart from the law. Verse 21 of our text, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This was done because we could not achieve that salvation by right living. Which moves us then to question number two. If we are so sinful, then how are we justified? Or better yet, how can our just God justify justifying us? That's a cool question, isn't it? How can our just God justify justifying us? If God is just and we are sinners, how can we be saved? Verse 25 of our text gives us that answer. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. So Christ, in his perfection, or his righteousness, he shed his blood and died. He was our sacrifice. He was our atonement. Jesus' death made people who believe at one with God. That is the atonement. So again, we call this justification, or more theologically, if you will, propitiation. Propitiation just means that God not only died to forgive our sins, which I think a lot of us who have been Christians for a long time know, but he didn't just die to forgive our sins. He died to bear God's wrath for us. God provided justice for the sin that everyone committed by punishing his son in our place. Put differently, the judge took the judgment. God doesn't disrespect the law here. By Jesus taking on the punishments of all of our sins, by bearing the wrath of God, it doesn't actually render the law useless. It displays its importance. It's not that in the Old Testament, God called people to obey the law, and then now in the New Testament, God's like, eh, forget the law, let's try faith instead. That's not how that works. The truth is, Christ followed the law perfectly to merit our salvation. It's not because we've obeyed it, but because Jesus did. He followed the law in his life and then bore God's wrath for our wrongdoing in his death. Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't ignore it. And now we're atoned for or made at one with God. We are righteous. We aren't simply forgiven in our sin, though that would be blessing enough. No, we are not only forgiven but we are made right in God's eyes, atoned for. We are justified. 
Christ's perfect life of obedience to the law allowed him to be the perfect atonement for our sins. And so when he suffered in his life, our sins were forgiven. Not only that, but we have been made righteous, perfect, flawless in God's eyes. All are justified freely by his grace. That's verse 24. This is, this is amazing news. Now, maybe some of you are hearing this for the first time, and I hope the weight of it sits in. Likely, many of you have heard this a lot of times in your life, and the danger is you're getting inoculized to it. You're becoming sort of immune to this message. But if we reject this atonement message, if we reject this news, or even if we start becoming numb to it, we are missing the greatest news in the world. Now, some might ask, why did all of this have to happen? Why did Jesus have to die? In some ways, that's a complex question. In other ways, there's actually a simple answer. Sin needed punishment. God's wrath against sin had to happen. And if Jesus didn't bear it, we all would have had to. See, God couldn't simply save us by becoming indifferent to sin, by simply ignoring sin on this earth and, and moving forward, pretending it never happened. See, this would show no love to victims of sin or abuse or, or provide justice for people who are just crying out to it. If God were indifferent to sin, there would be no assurance for the future because what's assuring about a future where sin has kind of ran rampant, where God doesn't care about it? That's not, that's not just. The bad guys win. Also, God couldn't be indifferent towards sin because that would go against the very pure, perfect, and holy nature of our God. Now, God didn't just set justice aside. What he did was way more amazing. He turned justice on himself. Christ didn't just suffer. He bore God's wrath in our place. And he chose to do this all along. This was not plan B. This was plan A. Our living God, Father, Son, and Spirit, they planned this all along because God loves us so much. See, what's beautiful, we are on the third day of Easter here. What's beautiful is the cross and the resurrection, don't, don't compromise God's love or God's wrath. Both are expressed perfectly in the gospel truth. Hear this from Tim Keller. He says this. He says, The cross satisfies the love of God and the justice of God. At the very same moment, it shows that God is both the judge who cares enough about, uh, who cares enough about his world to set standards and hold us accountable to them, and justifier, who has done everything necessary to forgive and restore us. We are all made righteous in God's eyes because of Christ, through faith alone. So question number three is this. What do we make of faith? Our text shows us a couple of ways that our faith plays itself out in our lives. First is this. The object of our faith is crucial. Verse 22 of our text says this quite clearly. This righteousness is given through faith. Faith where? In Jesus Christ. The object of faith matters. It's not simply having faith that saves, or even faith in God that saves. It is faith in Jesus Christ's life, death, 
and resurrection that matters. It's this exclusive belief that matters. The object of faith here is the crucial issue. Tim Keller has a wonderful example of this, and I'm just going to straight up steal it. If I needed to cross the Pacific Ocean tomorrow, I could have all of the faith in the world, mountains of faith in the world, that feathers duct-taped to my arm would work. And I could simply flap my arms as hard as possible and I would clear the ocean. I could have all the faith in the world in those feathers. But the object of my faith is going to keep me grounded and I'm not going to make it. However, if I had just the smallest amount of faith in a Boeing 737, just the tiniest amount of faith in that airplane, I could be terrified, I could be fretting, I could be throwing up in all of the puke bags in the thing because I am worried. But if I adjust a mustard seed's amount of faith to get on that plane, it'll get me across. Because it's not the amount of faith that I have. It's the object of faith that will get me across the ocean. The same is true with our salvation. It's not having the faith that saves you. We have to get this right. It's not faith that saves you. If you think you're going to be saved, if you only believe hard enough, if you only think more about God or or only have more faith than you currently possess, you're, you're missing the point. If you're putting your faith in your ability to believe or your ability to have faith, if you think your salvation is dependent on your ability to grow the amount of faith in your heart, You're putting your faith in you. You're putting your faith in your ability to believe. This is crucial because if you've come to think that your belief is the source of your forgiveness or your your salvation, you're going to stop looking at Christ and you're going to start looking inwards at your abilities. Then when you see doubts, it's going to rattle you. When you don't feel faith quite as clearly as you once did, it'll start to worry you object of your faith that saves you. It's Jesus who saves you. Even faith as small as a mustard seed in the right object, in the gospel truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that's what grants you salvation and righteousness. You don't need more faith. You just need faith in the right person. That's it. Salvation, righteousness is given to us by Christ through faith. It is Christ who saves you, not you, not your abilities, only Christ. And that leads us to the second point. The gift of faith in our life is just that. It's a gift. We have done nothing to contribute to our salvation. It is only Jesus. So this is what we touched on at the beginning, and we're coming back to it right now. Jesus intervened to save us. We don't have to do anything to achieve this righteousness. Now, this runs counter to everything. Think about it. Youth. Youth out there. When you want to play for the school volleyball team, you go to a tryout, you show them what you're capable of doing, and you say, look at me, look what I can do. Accept me. Young adults, when you apply to go to university... Right? You submit your transcripts, you show them your grades, and you tell them about the extracurricular activities you do, and you say, look at me, look what I can do, accept me. Now, everyone who's not a youth or a young adult, you apply for a mortgage, because we know the youth and young adults aren't going to be able to do that anytime soon, right, Will? 
sorry. But you go, you apply for a mortgage, right? You go to the bank, you show them your credit score, you give them your financial records, and you say to them, look what I can manage, look what I can do, accept me. Now for everyone, when you want a job, you go to this place, you show them your resume, you tell them of all the previous things you've accomplished, all the jobs you've done and the roles you've had, and you say, look at this, look what I've done, accept me. Now, this is also true for every other religion out there. Obtaining their versions of salvation in every other religion all involves you doing stuff. In Islam, you must follow the five pillars, including just living, pilgrimages, routine prayer, and fasting. In Hinduism, you get reincarnated after death, and what you are reborn as depends on the enlightenment you have attained in this world, which is obtained by worship, knowledge, and various acts and works. In Buddhism, you obtain nirvana, or, or complete peace, by right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, and right effort, among other things. In Judaism, people are saved by studying the Torah and living their lives by following the rules that are put in place. And even in this context we find ourselves in, in the post-Christian, atheist, pagan, pluralistic, secular, humanist, dressed however you want to call it, culture that we live in. The goal is to work and live for the social good for one another. That ultimate good comes from doing good, or at least not doing harm. That means that every other religion out there, you go to your God or your deity or your government and you say, look what I've done. Look what I have accomplished or the peace that I've obtained, or, or the family with which I belong to, or the physical or spiritual record that I've managed to keep out of the red. Look at who I am. Look at what I have done. Look at all of this, and please accept me. But not Christian faith. Paul says, but now. Jesus intervened. Righteousness is given to us apart from what we do. No other place offers this. Outside of the gospel, we must develop our righteousness or, or say, accept me. The gospel's different. The gospel says that God has developed a perfect righteousness and he offers it to us. And by what Christ did, we are accepted. That is the uniqueness of the Christian gospel. Brothers and sisters at Willoughby here today, this is so compelling. I hope you see how important this is. Why Jesus changes everything. Why Jesus living the perfect life that none of us have lived. And that when Jesus died the death that we all deserve to die, only to raise again from the grave three days later, defeating sin and death, forever, and then now he ascends to heaven and he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, intervening on our behalf. I pray you see how magnificently glorious that is. How unique and amazing that is to every other belief system out there. Being a good person is not the goal of our faith. Doing good things is not the goal of the gospel. Salvation is not about us trying harder or doing more. It's about receiving God's 
grace and then being transformed. Sometimes we Christians forget this. Mike Bird highlights this. He, he says this. He's got this quote. He says, In my short time as a follower of Jesus, I've had people tell me that in order to be saved, I need to speak in tongues, partake in some sacrament, only read the King James Bible, subscribe to a certain concession, believe in this diagram of the end times, jump through a dozen other hoops that seem to force or that seem to serve the purpose of validating the rantings of some lunatic with an opinion and a desperate desire to force it on others. Fortunately for me, I was well discipled by Christian leaders and attended churches where pastors were committed to biblical preaching, so I never got suckered into the Jesus plus stairway to salvation. But sadly, many do. It's not Jesus plus that saves. Only Jesus. Verse 24, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Hear that? All are justified. That's why this is possibly the most important paragraph ever written. This grace, this salvation, this righteousness is for everyone. The cross destroys discrimination. This righteousness is available to everyone, no matter their race, no matter their class, no matter their political leaning. This righteousness is ours, is yours, if you have faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus did. No matter who you are or what you've done. Are you a tax collector? Got good news for you. Are you a prostitute? I've got good news for you. You addicted to drugs or porn or alcohol or power? I've got good news for you. Are you ruled by greed? I've got good news for you. Are you married and divorced several times over? I've got good news for you. Are you constantly gossiping about your colleagues at work? I've got good news for you. Are you envious of your neighbor? I've got good news for you. Are you sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage? I've got good news for you. Are you lying to cover your own pride? I've got good news for you. Are you hoarding your wealth for your own comfort? I've got good news for you. You can add to the list, but if any of that resonates with you, I've got good news for you. Jesus gives you righteousness, which you receive by faith in him. This righteousness is for you. You have a clean slate if you believe in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. You're never too far out of reach for the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has good news for you. Amen? But, but now, if any of that resonates with you, there's other news too. If you have faith and receive this righteousness from Jesus Christ, everything's got to change. It transforms you. This Christ-given righteousness changes everything. It changes you. It has to. Jesus bore the wrath of God so that you don't have to. He took on the punishment for your sin. You cannot accept that gift and then think you can just keep on sinning. Verse 31 of our text ends with that. It asks the question, do we then nullify the law? No, we don't nullify the law, Paul says. We uphold the law. 
Again, this is the most important paragraph ever written. Everything boils down to this righteousness given to us by Christ. If you accept this truth and know that Christ's life, death, and resurrection save you from all your sin, you're forever free. You're liberated. The weight of sin and death gone forever. This changes you. You're free. But it does change you. This truth changes how you live in this world. No more boasting in anything. It's not your doing, it's God's doing anyhow. It changes how we talk. No more credit taking. We give God the glory and honor whenever we can and we live humbly in this world. It changes how we live to honor Him. No more disobedience or ignoring Him. We, we submit to God. We obey His word. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, we are unified as a body, handed righteousness for no reason of our own. He bore the wrath for you and me. If you've accepted this gift, praise God. If not, and you want to, please come speak with me afterwards or any of the elders here at Willoughby Church. This gift is yours for the taking. Jesus wants to give you that clean slate for free. Just put your faith in him. Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, this gift of righteousness that we have done nothing to earn ourselves runs counter to everything else in the world. What a magnificent gift your love and grace found in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is. God, for many of us here today, we've accepted that gift. We acknowledge the gospel truth found in Christ. But Lord, impress on our hearts the magnitude of what that is. And Lord, let us not, sh- not, not keep this news to ourselves. Let us spread this news to the world around us. Give us the courage to do that. Lord, this message is so compelling. Give us the words we need, the courage we need to share it with those and the people that you have placed in our lives. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your righteousness. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.